You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning, Grace family. It is good to be with you this morning, albeit virtually. I would love to see some of you face to face. I would even settle for mask to mask. I have seen a few of you out and about, but it's going to be a grand day when we can all be gathered back together. That may be a while, but it will happen sooner or later. Um, Several of you, I just want to get this out of the way up front. Several of you have mentioned my coronavirus beard. I wasn't aware that facial hair was growing. I just keep forgetting to shave, and I thought I was rocking a Wolfman Jack look, but apparently, ho, 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 uh, is more like it. We'll see how long this goes. A lot of people making comments, but I can make no promises about how long this puppy stays. One way that our hearts can share together, even though we're not in person, uh, is for for us to participate together in our quarterly day of fasting and prayer. That comes up once a quarter, and our day is coming up. Next Wednesday uh, is the month that we celebrate or do this, practice this in the rotation. This coming Wednesday, May 6th, is our regularly scheduled day of fasting and prayer. So we ask for those of you who will to fast from after dinner on Tuesday up through Wednesday evening. Then at 6.30 on Wednesday evening, uh, we're asking for your family to gather and pray for the church. Look, if, if you decide not to fast from food, perhaps you can fast from news or Netflix or something along those lines that you would be willing to give up. What I encourage you to pray in these four areas. First, for the safety of our body during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I understand that we have no promises of physical safety from the Lord for anything. Any, our days are written in the Lord's book before the world ever began. Before the world ever began, he, he decided how long we would live. But let's pray that none of our body will come down or contract COVID-19. It may already be too late, but we'll pray for safety and and pray for mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, all of these things during the pandemic. Second, pray for continued discipleship uh, to be evident among our members. And this includes evangelism. So be faithful in your spiritual disciplines before the Lord, uh, including time in the Word, prayer, uh, fellowshipping with other believers as you are able, giving, witnessing, all the ways that you normally uh, practice your faith, do so now. Three, Pray for the financial needs at our church to be met so that we can meet all of our obligations for our staff, our missionaries, and for any members who may temporarily need benevolence help. So pray for the Lord to take care of us financially. Fourth, pray for wisdom and safety to move back 
to services at church, which will be limited at the first. We recognize that. So pray for all of these things. And speaking of getting back to church, I hear a lot of church leaders expressing concern that once the doors are open, people will not return to the building, church building, not because they're afraid of contracting the virus, but because they enjoy the sofa too much. So this raises a question, why do people go to church? There are all kinds of reasons. Some go to understand what God expects of them. Uh, others go in hopes that they can find inspiration to make it through the week. You may be in trouble if that's your primary reason for going. <clears throat> others seek peace in their lives because their lives have been turned upside down. It is often in a crisis when people turn to the Lord and they recognize that the Lord is found at church amongst his people. Some people go because it's good for business or for social standing in the community. That is not the case as much as it was, say, 30, 40 years ago, but still, it is true for some people. But what if Jesus assured you that when you go to church properly, the world will hate you? I know this sounds dramatic, and you may be tempted to turn the sermon off, just shut it down right now, but... Could I ask you if you would just hang in there for the next three, no, I'm sorry, the next 30 or 40 minutes uh, as we encounter and process these strong and unexpected words of Jesus that we find in our text. The title of today's message is Mission Accomplished Despite Persecution or Despite Opposition. We will wade into the beautifully troubled waters of John 15, 18 through 16, 4a after I pray. So would you pray with me? Father, we confess that there is much about life that doesn't make sense to us and not just in this season of pandemic. We do not fully understand why the world is so opposed to the gospel. Yet we do understand because you told us it would be this way and we shouldn't be surprised. Even so, it catches us off guard. So may we take encouragement from this passage. Although there is much in these verses from John 15 and 16 that troubles us. Open our hearts to receive the truth you have given in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's text was read by Gina Damaris, who must have thought, really? This is the text that I'm asked to read? If you're joining us for the first time, it will be important for you to know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John. And the setting for today's text, as the setting for the message has been for a little while now, is the farewell discourse found in John 13 through 17. And this was the time when Jesus shared intimate instruction with his disciples, first in the upper room and then on the streets of Jerusalem as they moved toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would 
pour out his heart in agony to the Lord and where he would be arrested. Today's text comes just after uh, the first portion of John 15 that we thoroughly covered over the last two weeks. So picking up in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We know that Jesus was talking directly to his disciples when he says, I have chosen you out of the world. But is this true for all believers? Well, not to the same degree as it was for the disciples, but at some level, all believers are hated by someone. Oh, you think you're so perfect. What makes you think you've got this direct line to God and nobody else does? Look, I've had times when I've been in someone's presence, and I, I, I bet you've had this happen too, where you just sense that the Holy Spirit lives in that person because they, your spirits just commune with one another without even a word being said. You just have a sense that they belong to Jesus. And there are other times when I have sensed hostility from someone I have never met before, and I'm certain they don't know anything about me, maybe on a trip or something, but there is a greater antipathy that comes from one who is simply a misanthrope. Now, I'm going to take just a moment and let the sixth graders explain to their parents what a misanthrope is. That's when you learn that word, but most of us forget it before uh, we get to the seventh grade even. It's, it's a, a person who hates humankind. And there are times when people are not necessarily haters of other people, but they really don't like Christians because of the message we share. We know why the religious leaders oppose Jesus. He exposed their rank hypocrisy, and he threatened their power, their power base. Last week, Scott told us that there was a golden vine at the entrance to the sanctuary of the temple. We had learned the week before that God's description of Israel as a vine in the Old Testament almost always came with a negative remark from God about how he had planted this vineyard, intended to it, and given it every opportunity to bear fruit, but the nation failed. And yet, think about this, Israel chose the vine as a symbol of God's blessings to the nation. We are often blind to our own shortcomings, aren't we? Well, our forefathers surely missed their opportunity to do the right thing, but we have achieved near perfection, don't you think? Jesus came along and said, essentially, you are blind to your own sin. The servant of Isaiah is standing before you, and you want to kill me. If you do not believe that I am he, that I am God, you will die in your sins. Although it may be difficult to comprehend, this did not endear Jesus to the religious leaders. 
He was only hours from his execution by crucifixion when Jesus told the disciples that their relationship with him would lead to their own persecution. Why? Well, jealousy for starters. Jesus chose them out of the world. And if one hates Jesus, she's going to hate his followers. Just like I said a while ago, oh, you think you're so, who, who do you think you are? God's special child or his pet student? Teacher's pet? Savior's pet? You have seen what happens today to those who announce Jesus as the only redeemer of the world. It seems that secular groups are more the persecutors of believers in our day, in our land, than are religious groups. But many of those who oppose the kingdom of God are equal in religious fervor to those who hated Jesus when he was on earth. Why do you think passionate opposition to Jesus and the message of Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the world has continued for two millennia, passionate opposition. For starters, followers of Jesus take their instructions for how to live from scripture and not from culture. And this doesn't sit well with the culture because they're often convicted of their own sin. Even if you do not take a stand against some of the hot button issues, your commitment to live as Jesus commands is like fingernails on... Okay, I won't say it, you know. But to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Remember when Jesus asked Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In the same way you take the mistreatment of your children, children in a very personal manner, so Jesus takes personally the mistreatment of his followers. Without question, though, God prepared Saul's heart for conversion through Stephen's martyrdom, a martyrdom that Saul officially approved. In verse 22, Jesus speaks of the seriousness of the leader's rejection of him. Jesus did not mean that those who never hear of him are not accountable for their sin. So just because the Pharisees heard or the religious leaders heard, they were off the hook. That's not the point. Romans 2 says that all are accountable to God, whether they know the law or not, whether they know the Lord, whether they've ever heard Jesus' name or not. Romans 1 declared God's righteous wrath against all sin, the sin of all humankind. But Jesus came to remedy our sin problem. And he was sent by the Father. So to reject Jesus is to reject the God of the universe. Will we be judged because of our sins? Because of our sin nature? Because of our sins? Or because we refuse to believe in Jesus? because of our sins, but there was extra accountability to those who had access and knowledge of God's word as revealed under the old covenant and who saw Jesus standing before their eyes. Despite all the evidence that he was the Messiah to whom the Old Testament pointed, they rejected him and they were in big trouble. 
It is equally dangerous in our day to hear the gospel and to refuse to believe. The disciples would be hated when Jesus left because they would continue his mission in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. No wonder the world would hate them as much as they hated Jesus. Let's read verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This was clearly spoken to the disciples, not to us. You were with me, Jesus said, from the beginning. But the truth about the Trinity revealed in this text will be proclaimed to God's glory for all eternity. If we were able to meet at the church and all the books ever written about verse 26, the truth that's partially explained in verse 26, then there would be no room for us to sit in the sanctuary. You couldn't get into the welcome room. You couldn't get into the children's ministry area. And probably there would be no room to park. We would not have near the understanding as we do of our God as a trinity, three persons, one nature, if it were not for the truth described here and in the rest of the farewell discourse about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The truth shared here at a basic level, if you think about this, the truth that you see in the farewell discourse is assumed in the rest of the New Testament. I spent hours this week studying the concepts that help us understand the Trinity, even though the terms that are used often to explain the Trinity are not biblical terms themselves. That does not mean they are unbiblical, but they are extra-biblical terms that are employed to articulate the truth of Scripture in ways that help us to avoid heresy. Heresy, such as the notion that Jesus the Son was a created being. I'm not going to take the time today to explain the eternal generation of the Son or the procession of the Spirit from the Father and from the Son, which is at the core of the filioque controversy. I'm not going to define those terms here, but I will make a shameless plug for the church history class that I will be teaching in both the fall and spring semesters at Southwake Bible Institute beginning in September. Neil Manning is going to help me lead this class as he is able. We have done this in the past at Grace, but going to do it again this fall and spring semester, coming fall and spring semester at Southwake. Our study of church history will be as much a study of the development of Christian thought as it will be a study of events and dates. There will also be classes uh, for Genesis and Evangelism this fall. More about these three classes as we move into the summer. Let me give a brief word of explanation about verses 26 and 27. We have seen throughout John that the Father sent the Son to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness or for the Son to die for our sins. God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have also seen in John 14 that the Father will send the Holy Spirit at Jesus' request. request. And now in verse 26 of chapter 15, we're told that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to his disciples from the Father. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father. There's some deep theology in here. The Spirit will point to Jesus, and as we will learn next week in John 16, He will glorify Jesus at the direction of both the Father and the Son. Robert Lethem, who is a fine British theologian and wonderful to listen to, condenses the truth about the Holy Spirit that we are taught in the farewell discourse into one long sentence. Here is what Lethem says. The Holy Spirit hears the Father, receives from the Father, takes from the Son, and makes it known to the church, proceeds from the Father, is sent by the Father, in the name of the Son, is sent by the Son from the Father, rests on the Son, speaks of the Son, and glorifies the Son. Having read this explanation of the Spirit, this may well be as clear to you as my father would say back in the day, clear as mud to you. How can we make sense of it all? If, if we took an entire service to cobble together all the verses about the Holy Spirit in the farewell discourse and then to talk about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit's place in the Trinity and responsibility in the Trinity, we would have begin to scratch the surface of the, of the amazing truth about our God that we serve. You can access an entire series about the Trinity from our sermon series about the Trinity from our website, but since it is 12 years old, I am certain that I would prefer it were refreshed a little bit. We will never stop learning about the Trinity. As thrilling as such truth may be, it is the cause of the world's hatred of us. In John 16, 1 through 4a, Jesus describes all the things that will happen to those who belong to God through Jesus. This was religious persecution. And while there is some of that in our land, it comes more from the secular world than from the religious world, as I have already noted. What we face here is nothing compared to what believers in other parts of the world face. Some reports have as many as 300 people per month dying for their faith in Jesus. And that is now in 2020. This should not surprise us. Jesus prepared us as well as his disciples in our text. As Martin Luther said, it is not fit that the head should wear a crown of thorns while the members sit on cushions. Here is a sad reality. The world hates Christians, and we're not even sharing the gospel. 
If we're going to suffer persecution, shouldn't we be sharing the good news of Jesus for our troubles? And here is another word for us. When we suffer persecution, we are not called to resist and to shout down our opponents on social media. We are called to follow Jesus' example of turning the other cheek. Where is the comfort in this? It's in the knowledge that after Jesus died and was buried, he rose from the dead, guaranteeing the forgiveness of sins for those who hope is in, whose hope is in Jesus and for our own bodily resurrection at the end of time. His mission will succeed despite persecution. I want to close the sermon this morning with three truths from the text. These are not application points, but there is application to be gleaned. Since our text was difficult to receive, it will not surprise you that these truths are challenging, but there is hope in each one. First, when people seek God to help them with their problems, they will only be blessed when they understand that God is their problem. Near the beginning of the message, I raised the question, why do people go to church? Michael Horton says that many people go to church looking for a therapist rather than a savior. Horton is also the one who said that many go to church to see if God will help them with their problems, but they fail to recognize he is their problem. What Michael Horton means is that people do not recognize the gravity of their sin before their holy creator. Our sin has indeed put us in hot water with God. When we seek to cover our sins and to convince ourselves that we are good enough or that we can become good enough to be accepted by God, we find ourselves in the position of the religious leaders who oppose the Savior. They didn't think that they needed a Savior. Does that sound familiar? Jesus made it clear that he had come to heal the sick, not those who saw no need for a physician. This is the reason that the world has a problem with us. We are in the unenviable position of telling them that they need to be saved because they can never be good enough. It seems to me that it would be good news to admit that you're a sinner and fall on the mercy of Jesus because he has promised forgiveness and promised that he will never reject those who come to him. But then we walk in light. I used to walk in darkness. And the last thing I wanted to hear was someone say, there is good news about Jesus. So I know how it is. You may be ready to hear the good news. though. That, that would be wonderful if you are. If you will confess your sin to the Lord and call out to Jesus to save you on the basis of his sacrifice for you on the cross, you will not only not have a problem with God, you will immediately find yourself in the family of God with all the attendant blessings. Receiving Jesus is a big deal. 
So is our second truth. Rejecting the Messiah is a big deal. Believers usually seek to be as gentle as possible when sharing the gospel with others. We do not try as hard with politics or fashion or sports, but with the gospel, we don't want to offend people. And yet, the world is offended with the gospel anyway, even though we are busy attempting to fit in and not offend as we fail to communicate what we need to tell people and they need to hear. Rejecting Jesus is a big deal. Thinking about a relationship with God does not seem to matter to those whose sole focus is on this life. We have any number of ways of justifying ourselves. For some, we look at what we have as opposed to those who are poor. Some of us need the poor to justify our own relationship with God. This is just one of the the many pernicious forms that the prosperity gospel takes, comparing ourselves with those who have less than we and thinking that we have earned God's favor. It's apparent, right? For others, helping the poor is a means of salvation. I'm not going to lie. I've been deeply convicted over the last couple of years, and I continue to be, about my lack of focus on those who have less than I. And that's only one of the reasons that I am excited that Steven Eisenberg is leading the team of men and women uh, to think more deeply and more biblically about our benevolence ministry, gearing up for intentional service, not only to our church family, but in our community. I am excited because I know our benevolence team will not forget that helping others is not the means of salvation, but salvation is found only in Jesus. And his followers of all people ought to have hearts of compassion. Even as we serve others, we must always remember Jesus first, then service. Receiving Jesus is a big deal, and as our text has taught us, rejecting Jesus is a big deal. But knowing our sin is the first step, first step in coming to Jesus. Those with whom we are connected should know this. <clears throat> Last, even though the world persecutes Jesus' followers, his mission will be accomplished. This point is more assumed from all of the farewell discourse and from evidence in history than it is directly from this text. In John 15 and 16, after having repeatedly commissioned his disciples for mission, here he tells his disciples what the cost will be for following him. If we look only at the, at the disciples' actions after Jesus' arrest, we might conclude that following Jesus is not worth it because after all they gave up, it had come to this. 
If we see the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, and especially after the promised Holy Spirit came to indwell believers and empower the church at Pentecost, well, night and day is barely an adequate descriptor. The question for Jesus' followers is simple. His kingdom or mine? I know how you live because I live much the same way that you live. I don't think there's much difference. As they say, our suspicions of others are often the result of an intimate acquaintance with ourselves. What if, instead of complaining about our lack or about our condition, we rejoiced with John and Peter when beaten by the religious leaders, counting it a privilege to suffer for Jesus. All we have to do is, is to take some, some, some less than flattering words about our thoughts or our positions or about our person. That's all it takes for us to go into it. What if we just counted it joy to suffer for Jesus? What if we sang hymns in prison with Paul and Silas or with the many martyrs of the first few centuries as they faced down lions and wild dogs in the arena, as they were made a spectacle for pagans to cheer on their deaths? And we are outraged because someone said something with which we disagree on Instagram. What if we paid what is required? What if we even sold things to take care of people uh, in our church like the early church did? Now remember, when the saints in Jerusalem sold some of their possessions to take care of the poor, it was first to help the poor who were in the Jerusalem church, but then they ministered to all people as well. What if? Jesus came to die for our sins. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. He transferred the mission to the disciples with the Holy Spirit leading the way in every respect. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus and glorifying the one whose mission we are blessed to advance in our day and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's good news. Even though it's difficult news, it's good news. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are overwhelmed with the truth we have received this morning. To think of our God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is thrilling even if we do not comprehend nearly as well as we would desire. We know what you have done in our lives through Jesus. And while we enjoy all good things that your hand has given us, may our hearts ever be attracted to Jesus and to the mission he has given us, no matter the cost. Thank you, Father, for sending the Holy Spirit to glorify the Son and to lead the church with Jesus as our head. 
May our hearts be stirred to serve joyfully and to serve with passion. Thank you for serving us, for saving us, and for putting us on mission. We praise you and offer our prayers in the name of the one who makes us worthy to stand before you because we stand in his righteousness, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. God bless. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.